1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's two particular instances in my childhood experience of church that stand out on days like this for me. Neither one of them are particularly healthy, but they made a deep impression on me as I moved forward in my life and then especially as I moved into the ministry, as we tend to call it. Uh, the first one occurred uh, when I was a preteen. I was in probably fifth grade, and the church where my father was pastoring was a small church, probably uh, the whole building, probably two of them would fit into this one. And I remember a particular Wednesday night service, might have been a Sunday night, but I think it was Wednesday, and uh, in the middle of it, there was some stuff going on with the teenagers in the back, and I knew them because my brother was older than I was enough to be hanging out with the teenagers, and so I knew those guys, and uh, I remember specifically my dad calling one of them down from the pulpit. Now, he did that to me once when I was very young, and once was plenty for me, so I learned how to behave in church, and uh, on this particular day, this one guy named Ricky was not behaving very well, and my dad called him down, and the thing that remind, uh, that, that just sticks out in my memory is Ricky jumped up, and he had a few choice words that he said at a louder than normal level, and then he grabbed a hymnal. Now, most of us don't know what a hymnal is, but it's an old thing we used to use in church that has songs in it. And he picked up this book and he threw it from the back of the auditorium all the way up to the front at my dad. That made an impression on me because that's the first time I'd ever seen anybody stand up to my dad and live through it. And it was my first taste of a family feud that occurs in the church family. The second instance that stands out in my memory occurred in a business meeting at a different church. By this time, I was a teenager, and uh, in this particular business meeting, I, I knew going into it that something wasn't exactly right because my dad was a little more intense than normal. And uh, on this particular evening at this particular church, uh, I, I, rem- I don't remember what the issue was, but I vividly remember a lady, well, I see how there I go giving credit where no credit's due probably, a woman in the church jumped up and started yelling at the course of events that was happening in the church that day. Now, I have to tell you, as a teenager, I had a different response than I did when I was a preteen. When I was a preteen, I was totally scandalized, freaked out that anybody would do that. As a teenager, I was enjoying the show of this lady who totally lost her cool in a church business meeting setting. I do remember something of the fallout from that. Because that was the last time I ever saw that family in our church building. Now, I'd see her around town a little bit after that, but she never again came to church. You ever you know of churches like that or situations like that? I suspect that that's never happened here. But just in case it has, what I want to do today is I want to zero in on this idea. I don't know if you saw the sign out there this week. Family feud... Or family feast. Now, when we get finished in here, the Crestwood family is going to go over to the Family Life Center, and there's food waiting for us. And so now some of you are going, okay, preacher, let's hurry this along. But before we go over there, I want us to take an opportunity today to ask ourselves a basic question. Of all of the churches that you know, how many of them are famous for their feuding? 
You know that in preacher circles, some churches have a reputation of being what we call man-eating churches? When we come together like this, we do this on purpose. Every quarter, roughly, every Sunday where there are five months, I mean five, every month, see the water got to my head over there. I felt like a tea bag sitting in there just for the record. Every month that has five Sundays, we take the fifth Sunday and we come together as a church, combining our two worship services, and we focus on what we're doing here. That's one of the reasons we like to do whatever we can as far as baptism. Now, you need to be baptized. We'll baptize you anytime. Okay, we'll meet up here on a Tuesday if that's what it takes for you. But we want to try to move them to this day if we can, rather than have them spread out and half of the congregation gets to see and half doesn't and doesn't know. We're going to do Lord's Supper in a little bit because there are times that we need to come together as a family. That's why we do this. So as we do this today, I want us to think very carefully about ourselves today. And now that starts with you in the chair where you're sitting but it comes through all of us in this building that we occupy together. Are we a family that is feasting together or a family that is given to feuding? Well, maybe we should just stop and ask ourselves, should we expect anything different than feuding? That seems to be the way of the world that's around us. You know, the society that we live in elevates division over unity. Have you figured that out? If you haven't, let me encourage you to flip on the news today and watch one of those 24-hour news channels and see how long it takes them to emphasize the division that is ours in America. We have a political process that is upon us. We'll be electing a president, whether a new one or a used one. I don't know. We'll find out soon enough. But between now and November of next year, what we're going to get is a constant flow of division. If we don't see it there, we see it in our communities. Years ago, when I was commuting from the Rio Grande Valley to Houston, working on my master's degree, I would fly into Intercontinental Airport every Monday morning, and I would rent a car, and I would drive all the way across Houston to the southwest part of town to the Houston Baptist University campus. Now, in that commute, usually during the heart of rush hour, I started realizing that I was going across multiple community boundaries, the area right around Houston Baptist University is largely uh, oriental and uh, various countries are represented in that area right next to them. I stayed overnight when I had to stay overnight in the home of a pastor there who lived right smack in the middle of the Jewish community. And in order to get to those communities, I had to drive across the designated black community in Houston. And in order to get there, I had to come across the designated poor communities in Houston. And from the airport all the way down and all the way back, I was reminded repeatedly, we are a divided people. That's our society. We emphasize it in political seasons. We live in those kind of segregated kind of things, even in our neighborhoods. One of the great comments that I heard years ago from a man down the Rio Grande Valley, he says, you know, when society turned and started going to the dogs, I said, no, when? He said, when we learned what a fence was and when somebody invented air conditioning. I slapped him because I like air conditioning a lot. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, before there were fences, we could just go out in the neighborhood and we could just play. And we'd 
sit out and we'd sit out on the porches. But you see, when we got air conditioning, we closed everything in, we went inside our houses, we built fences, and we segregated ourselves, divided, if you will, from our, even our next-door neighbors. And what used to be a neighborhood community became a collection of houses there. And I thought, makes sense. So the question of the hour for us, I think, as we come to this, is should we as Christian people let the norms of society drive us? Is it okay for us to live in that uh, set of norms that society lays out for us? Or should we have a different standard? Paul would say to us, as he said to the church at Corinth, no, that's not acceptable. Division in the body of Christ is not acceptable. In other words, the family feud part of the equation needs to be ruled out. Just stop for a second. Look at the church as we know it these days. Not necessarily us. As far as I know, we don't have any big dividing factors out there. I'm sure that if we do, some of you will tell me before we're finished here. But many churches today are marked by division. And that when you walk into their churches, whichever side you happen to sit on is going to dictate to you who talks to you and who doesn't. Unity or division? What is acceptable for the church? 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, I want you to notice a couple of things here because Paul writes to a church that is marked by division. They are a messed up church. Most preachers today in seminaries tell one another you don't ever want to pastor the first church at Corinth because it is a church that has all kinds of problems. And in the first chapter, the first rattle out of the box, Paul identifies their fundamental problem. In verse 11, he said, Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there are no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's the call he gives. He doesn't accept family feud as the norm. It is family feast, he's going to argue. Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by some, or by Chloe's people specifically, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or... Well, I follow Cephas. Or, and I think if we could hear Paul's inflections, the very specifically pompous, well, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now I'm going to stop reading there for a second because already what we have is something of what the problem with the Corinthian church was. The reason they were divided is because they polarized around high-profile religious people. Let me say it this way. They polarized to the Christian rock stars of the day. Certain ones said, well, you know, I'm a disciple of Paul. And others said, well, yeah, you probably are, but I'm a disciple of Cephas, of Peter. I mean, he was, you know, after all, one of the twelve. In fact, he was one of the three that were inside the twelve. He's the one that Jesus seems to have liked a lot. I follow Cephas. And others take the up-and-comer. Well, I'm a disciple of Apollos. 
And what we find through all of this is Paul identifying that in this early church, they were divided and polarized over these high-profile people. Don't think for a second that the church of this day doesn't fall into that trap. Let me give you a couple of examples. I moved to a church one time out of the state of Texas. That limits it if you know anything about my background. But I moved to a church outside the state of Texas and served there for a while. But almost as soon as I got there, a person in our church, a lady, made an appointment to come to me. Now, I was a youth minister in that church. She came into my office. She sat down and she said this to me, and I quote verbatim, "Um, I'm sure that you're familiar with Kay Arthur. And I said, "Um, no, um, I'm afraid I'm not. And immediately, there was a division between us. And she went on then to explain to me how I was uh, very ill-informed, regardless of whatever kind of education I had. I was extremely ill-informed because I wasn't familiar with this person's approach to Bible study and the Bible studies that she had written. As a matter of fact, the reason for the whole meeting was because this lady felt like I needed to really only do K. Arthur Bible studies with our teenagers. And immediately, as I said, a division occurred. Well, that's not the only time that's happened to me. I could give you other examples. Even staff members. Have you heard of a guy? He's a struggling little preacher. I think he got a little bit of radio time. His name is David Jeremiah. Are you familiar with him? I had a staff member in another church who worked with me who used to come in on a regular basis and say, well, uh, what are you preaching on this week? And I would tell him, he said, oh, you know what David Jeremiah says about that? And I said, no, I really don't. But I can tell you what I think the Holy Spirit's telling me about that. Well, he wasn't really interested in that, but he could quote verbatim what David Jeremiah says. Now listen to me very carefully. I don't have anything against K. Arthur or David Jeremiah. What I have something about is when people start being disciples of the rock stars of our day rather than Jesus Christ. I had an inspector for the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation come to our church in Edinburgh. Let me, let me translate that for you. A guy showed up with fangs and bloodshot eyes. And he came to do our church a favor and close out the inspection report on some new construction that we had done. And so I talked to him and took him over to the building and he started and he spent an hour in the nursery. Four pages single-spaced violations that had to be corrected. We spent $40,000 before he ever got out of the nursery trying to bring it up to code. And in the whole time that he's talking to me, he said, so you're the pastor here? Yes, sir. Well, I'm the guy that keeps them from having a good pastor. And he said, well, I understand that. He said, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I go to that church in Houston. Um, what's that guy's name? Yeah, Osteen. See how quickly we know those things? 100,000 churches in Houston. And he says, I go to that church in Houston. And he started telling me how wonderful Joel Osteen was. All right, well, okay, I do have some things against Joel Osteen, but um, mostly his his theology is what I have a problem with. But uh, nevertheless, my point is, and this this guy wanted to sit and talk to me while he's ripping us apart about how wonderful... His pastor is. That's fine. He needs to do his job. We needed to have it right. I don't have any cut with that. I don't have any problem with that. 
what I have a problem with is we can go through a discussion of an hour and the name of Jesus Christ never comes up in those kind of things. That's the church at Corinth. Paul says there's divisions among you. And some of you say, well, I'm following Paul. And others say, well, I'm following Cephas. And others say, well, I'm following Apollos. And there is that really good crowd that says, well, we follow Jesus Christ. Well, good for you. But what are you doing about the division? See, one of the things that I want you to get today is the time for me to have these kind of sermons is when we don't have a problem. Okay? Well, I'm not saying we don't have a problem because I think every church has this problem, but this is not one of those things where we have a bunch of people fixing to walk out the door as far as I know, or at least you weren't when I started preaching. Now, maybe you're thinking about it now. I don't know. But what, what I want you to get is when we come to times like this, when we come together as a family, we need to be intentional here. It is not enough for us to just say, well, we're a kind of a church with two services and we you know, have a lot of things going on and you know, this side of the room doesn't know this side of the room, but we're not fighting about it, preacher. No, that's fine. That's great, actually. But we need to be careful that the main thing is the main thing when we come together. We're getting ready to do a Lord's Supper service. And part of what that means is we're going to come together at the time that we are most unified at the foot of the cross. There's no class system at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes needy at that point. So let's be careful when we come together as a church that we don't just assume some things are in place. Let's make sure that this is, in fact, a family feast. Now, let me just kind of stop for a second. Another thing about this church that Paul writes to is that they are polarized not just by the rock stars of their day in in the Christian circles. They're also polarized because of cultural realities and religious observances. One of the things that Paul is going to deal with in the book of 1 Corinthians, if we were preaching through it, Probably about eight months from now, we would get to the chapter where he talks about lawsuits among Christians. One of the most misused and abused passages of Scripture that I've heard among Christian people is this idea about lawsuits and Christians suing one another. I'm not going to go into all that today. I'm just telling you, Paul writes that to a church that is marked by divisions and they're going to the secular courts to settle their differences. That's a cultural problem in that day. He also gets to another point of division for them, part of their cultural, that leads into their religious life, and that gets to the point of meat that's sacrificed to idols and whether you should eat it or not. Paul understands, and by extension we need to understand, that there are things in our society that press in on us, and if we're not careful, we just pull them right into the church and they serve to divide us rather than to unify us. Let me just highlight a few things that might be dividing us today. I've already said, if you're visiting with us, I'm going to tell you, this is a good church. We're not perfect, but we're on the way to being what God called us to be every day as individual Christians and then collectively. So I I don't want you to think you walked into church that's fixing to, you know, have a big blow up because I don't believe that's the case. And if it is the case, then we're going to deal with it and try to be what God wants us to be. But I don't think that's the case at all here. It's a good time for us to come back to what does it mean to be unified and what gets in the way of our unity. So let me just highlight a few things that might be problematic for us. You know, first of all, maybe your history is a dividing point for you. 
I'm not talking about the church at large. I'm talking about you as an individual. And what I specifically mean by that, let me just put it in the form of a question. Do you have a history with anybody in this church that gets in the way of unity for you? If you can look across this room or not outside, I mean, not inside the room, but outside the room, do you have anybody in this church that you have a history with that is marked by feuding? If you do, then now's a good time to understand what Paul calls us to. You know, the, fact, the sad fact is that none of us are immune to this. Every one of us has the very real possibility of having some kind of relationship with somebody, some kind of interaction with somebody where they just rubbed you the wrong way and you decided and they decided we're not ever going to get along after this. You know what Jesus has to say about that? Well, one thing he has to say about that, if you go to worship and you find that your brother has something against you, go fix it and then come back and worship. I don't want a show of hands or anything like that, but how many of you this morning before you came to church thought, you know, I got an issue with somebody over there and I know they don't like me. Maybe I should call them and get that straight. We don't do that because we've decided and our society helps us that whether it's just okay for, you know, they're they're just mean people so it's okay if I don't get along with them. Matthew chapter 18 is another place. Jesus says, if you've got a problem with somebody, go to them. You and them, and fix it. And if it doesn't get fixed, then you get somebody else, you go to them, and you work at it. And, you know, we stop there a lot of times. We said, then, then Jesus says, you can kick them out. You can just have nothing to do with them. That's right. But chapter 19, Jesus goes and he starts talking about forgiveness. The things that our society accepts as normal get in the way for us when it comes to being what God calls us to be and to worship. Here's another thing that polarizes us our comfort level this this is going to get a little serious now i bet you're glad i'm almost out of time we get a little bit comfortable and our comfort level divides us particularly what i mean by that is we settle in to our circle of relationships and we get very comfortable in that circle. Now, your circle may have two or three people in it. It may have 10 or 15 people in it. Very likely it doesn't have much more than that. It might be a Sunday school class. It might be just a group. It might just be some people that you just kind of develop friendship over the years. But we get comfortable with a group of people and then we settle into our comfort zones and in the process of that, we block everybody else out. Now, comfort zone at this point is not a bad thing necessarily, but pushed beyond where it needs to stop, it becomes not a comfort zone, but a click. Does that term communicate well for you? Every church I know anything about has a problem with this, including this one. Because we all settle into comfort zones and we get our people that we like and, you know, we've been around them enough that we kind of settle into the relationship. We don't have to work at it. But what we don't see is, because we're comfortable there, what we don't see is that other person who comes in from the outside who's not part of one. I was at a function not too long ago. A number of church people involved. 
I didn't see this happen, but somebody came to me later and said, hey, did you notice that at that church function with people everywhere, there was an individual who sat over in a room by themselves for long periods of time? And I said, I didn't see that. You know why I didn't see it? Because I was talking to the people that were talking to me. It's our comfort zones, and we, we fall into that, and so we build these little circles, and everything's great in the circle, and what we don't see is there are people on the outside who are dying alone out there. And it creates divisions. So let's do a little exercise here. How did you look when you came into church this morning? Now, I got a bunch of you talk to me this morning because I was wearing jeans and shirt, not tucked in. Several of you looked at me and said, wow, you're just kind of dressed down for the occasion today, aren't you? I saw I went ahead and put my suit on just to make you feel better. No. <laughs> I made the deacons feel better because they had to wear suits today, so I figured I would too. <laughs> How did you look when you came into church today? I'm not talking about your clothes, by the way. I'm talking about when you walked in the building. How did you look? Did you scan the room for people you know? Did you look across the top of everything looking for that circle that's yours? In the process of that, how many people did you look over in order to find the one or the several that's in your comfort circle? One of the biggest marks against the church of our day is that lonely people filter in the back door and get totally ignored by the loving congregations who call themselves God's people. How did you look when you came in? Comfortable gives way to click. We don't intend it to happen. We don't even have to work at it. It just kind of happens. And people die alone. We have to be intentional at relationships. Not a single person should ever come into this building and walk away without somebody saying, man, I'm glad you're here today. I don't even know who you are, but I'm glad you're here today. I hope that just this reminder will be one of the things that you can help work on as we go forward. No matter which service you go to, if you don't know somebody who's here, then go up to them. Do like I do. Have we met? Because I think I would remember a face like yours. No, I don't say that. <laughs> you know what? They're not going to look at you and say, you're, you're such a... Well, I'll be careful with how I say this because there's children in here. Um... People are not going to hold it against you if you ask them, have we met before? Because I really want to know who you are. Not in an antagonistic way, but we're glad you're here. That leads to family feast. But the family feud part, people walk in and get hurt and left behind in churches all the time. So let's work on it. Finally, our structure often divides us. And this is a message specifically for Crestwood. The way we do church means that we have to work hard at the feast part. Why do we have two services? Now, I told you when I came, I will reiterate it here, okay? I don't have a problem with us having two services. I'm fine with that. And I'm, I'm fine for us to continue that. But I want to ask you, 
why do we have two services? And part of the answer that I was given, and I think it holds true not just for us but for others, is because some people like one kind of music and some people like another kind of music. Let me ask you this. What kind of music do you suppose we're going to do when we get to heaven? I have a feeling that the worship wars, a term that was used by a professor of mine who was a church music professor, the worship wars, that should be an oxymoron. Unfortunately, it's the norm in most churches. I got a feeling that when we get to heaven and start singing there, the worship wars will be long gone. It makes no sense, folks, for us to be divided over music. And I don't think we are in this church. As far as I can tell, there's not this, you know, brewing controversy or anything like that. And part of that's because we decided some people like this kind enough will give a service for that. Some people like this kind will give a service for that. And that's fine as long as we don't just say, okay, and never the two shall meet. That's why we're in here today. That's why when I, when I first started talking to Dory about these kind of services, I said, now when we come together, he said, what kind of music do you want? I said, I want a little bit of both. You know what he said? So you don't want anybody to be happy, huh? <laughs> He's a wise guy. And I don't mean like smart aleck. I mean that's a wise response. So when we come together, you know, you may be sitting out there going, they sang too much of that other kind of music. And the funny thing is both sides are probably saying that. Or maybe not. Maybe that's just something the preacher's dreaming up here. We come together not because of that stuff. See, I, I guess the way I want to pull this down is there's plenty of stuff that will divide us. Paul saw it in the Corinthian church. We see it in the churches of our day. There's plenty of stuff to divide us. What we need is something to unite us. You remember how it was in America on September the 10th, 2001? No. You remember how it was on September the 11th? How about September the 12th? How different was society in America on September the 12th from what it was on September the 10th? You couldn't buy an American flag a week into that crisis. Why was that? Because as a... Un as a, as a um, uh, Union, we suddenly had a reason to be unified. Somebody attacked us. And so let's go get them sorry rotten scoundrels over there. Is it going to take an attack on the church of the 21st century for us to figure out that we better get together? Newsflash, those attacks happen every day. But one of Satan's grandest schemes is to get the unified body of Christ fighting each other over dumb stuff. And he's got us where he wants us before we ever even get in the fight. And Paul, the brilliant theologian and churchman that he was, wades into the mess of Corinth and he says to them, you're divided. And it's a family feud. And the whole reason that he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians was because the witness of the church and the community of Corinth was shot because of what was going on between the walls. And so his message rings through the ages to us today. Your testimony in this community is directly impacted 
by whether you're feasting or feuding. Look at chapter 3, verse 11, very quickly. Here's what Paul says. I'll read from verse 10. According to the grace of God, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Let each one of you take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know what we need that will bind us together, that will unify us? We don't need more attacks. We need to come back to the foundation who is Jesus Christ. What we do in here is not about us. It's about Him. Everything we sing, no matter what style of music it is, needs to be focused on worshiping and honoring Jesus Christ and in reminding us of the life that He gives us and the call that we have. When we come together and we see baptisms happen, seven people or 70 people, it needs to be a reminder to us that Jesus Christ is still alive, He's still at work, and He's changing lives to this day. And we focus there. Because we can focus on a thousand different things as a church. And if we lose sight of the basic foundation, who is Jesus Christ, we're sunk as a people. And we'll be fighting before it's over with. We keep our focus where it belongs. So what do you do? Paul's going to remind us in just a few chapters. We'll be in chapter 11 in just a few moments. He's going to remind us in just a few moments that when it comes right down to it, as I said earlier, all of the ground at the foot of the cross is that common unifying ground for us. How could we possibly be fighting one another if we stood looking into the eyes of a crucified Jesus as he dies and breathes his last breaths? How could we fight with that person that he died equally for as he died for us? We get the feast right when we keep our focus right. So today's a reminder. It's not about us. It's about Him. We serve at His pleasure, and it's a pleasure to serve Him. Right? I hope you can say yes. Let me ask you to just bow your heads for a few moments. Here's, here's the invitation. Now, for right now, this is not a walk-the-aisle invitation. This is just you sitting in your chair. What place does Jesus Christ have in your life right now? Is it possible that maybe you bought into a, an approach to the Christian life that really revolves around church stuff, but the voice of the Master has not been heard many time, for a long time in your life? Jesus says, I came to give you life, life that is abundant. How is your life these days? If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you find yourself living as a slave to sin, Jesus came to free you from that. It may be a habit that you're locked into. It may be just a general life that has just thumbed your nose at God and said, I don't need you. But you walk in here today and you know that something's missing. Jesus Christ said, I'll save you from your sin. Only he can do that. It requires that you place your trust in him. When you do that, it makes you part of his family. 
and that family, part of which is this church, provides other kinds of help for you in your life. Fellowship, support, those kind of things. But it all starts with a decision for Jesus Christ. If you haven't ever trusted him as your Savior right now, I invite you to do that. Right there where you sit, in your own words, essentially just tell him, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need you. I know that I haven't had place for you in my life. But right now, all of that changes, and I give myself to you as totally as I know how to do it. And I trust you to do right by me in doing that. You'll trust him as your Savior. He'll give you life. And you just tell him that. Just a few minutes, we'll go to the time of invitation. If you have done that in your own words between you and God right there, I'll invite you to just make that public. Just slip out and come forward. We'll talk with you a little bit about that. Many of us have long since made that decision, but Christ may not be a real big part of our lives on a day-to-day basis. Today's been a reminder you look around this room that other people in here might even have gone lacking because of your wandering. Today could be the day that you just turn that around, get back on track. If there's somebody in this room that you're feuding with, this invitation time could be the time that you get that straight. It'd be all right if you just walk over to them. We're all going to stand in just a minute. Matter of fact, let's just all stand now. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Just go ahead and stand up. But this might be the time that you just walk over to them and say, you know what? We've been wrong. This is between us and we need to get it straight. This is the invitation time. What do you do with what God is doing with you right now? Just a few moments, no singing, just music playing. Respond to what God's telling you. I'll be down front.